listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Do you understand how King Saul's fall from kingship and David's call to kingship work together? We must see what God wants out of his king. We must understand what is the core quality that God is looking for among this human king. It's why Saul fails. It's why David is chosen. It's why Jesus one day exudes this perfect quality. And he says it in Deuteronomy 17, uh, hundreds of years before Saul or David. Look with me. Deuteronomy 17, God writes through Moses, and when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, a copy of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. Hundreds of years before Saul or David, God declares here that humility, not just in general or vaguely, but humility before God and his precious words which leads to humility with everyone else, even as the king, is the core quality of what the king who follows God should be. That is truly the meek that will inherit the earth. And when we see humility's opposite is pride. Why does King Saul rise and then fall and be disqualified to be king over Israel? It's his pride, and it manifests in a laundry list of ways. It's all over the place. If you look with me here, first, he kind of, Saul goes to the battle, and he makes a sacrifice before the battle, doing it himself. He can't wait for the priest to come. He can't wait for Samuel to come as instructed. So he goes, ah, I'll just do this sacrifice real quick. It shows a rush to just get things done instead of do it God's way. Then in Samuel 14, he makes a foolish vow. It reminds us of the bad judge, Jephthah. He makes this crazy vow of like, we're not going to eat until this and this happens. And his own son breaks it and people have to talk him out of it. And he's just a fool with his power and a fool with his leadership. In 1 Samuel 15, he refuses to obey God's specific instructions. He was supposed to devote an entire army and its people and its cattle and all of its stuff to destruction. But he wins the battle and like doesn't devote the king to destruction and like keeps all the cows and sheep and stuff. And it's like, well, we're going to sacrifice these, you know. And he kind of half obeys and shows a disregard for what God says. And then last, he, he builds monuments to himself in 1 Samuel 15, 12, which, you know, just a quick survey of all of human history. If you are a leader who builds monuments to yourself, it always goes poorly. Only a prideful person would say, you know what? Get some stone together, guys, and put that up for me. You want others to build a monument for you, preferably like after you've passed, not paying people to do it actively while you live. And pride is this. Pride is thinking you are better than other people. 
spiritually even having a low or fake false need for God. Because in many of these circumstances, Saul will like sort of repent, like kind of say sorry, like kind of take it back, but not really. He's not a man hungry for God and his ways and to obey. He's a man who just kind of wanders around and is always trying to appease other people's opinions. See, prideful people have a hard time seeing their sin, let alone truly repenting of it. They don't see their need for God and really they don't see their need for anyone else beyond using them. Therefore, these monuments to self make sense in a prideful heart. But humility, God's value for a human king is just the opposite. Humility is rightly seeing oneself, not more, not less. As Jamal excellently taught us to stay human-sized, to be exactly who you are, not more, not less. Saul even tried to be less and hide in the baggage and act like he was an anointed king. That's pride too. It's false humility. Humility is rightly seeing oneself. Kinship with other people is peers. Humble people see they're just one of the crowd, and that's a good thing because we're all made in God's image. Kinship with other people as peers and spiritually as needy before a holy God. They see they aren't God in need, God. And so we have these two ways to live. And for God's king must be a humble king. And because of Saul's pride, he disobeys God, often worrying about other people's opinions and not being too concerned about God's opinion of him. Prideful people live and die on winning others' approval, while the humble are concerned with God's approval of them. The humbles are oriented a different way. They're worried about what the final opinion will be. They're concerned with the master, not with themselves. And this passage teaches us what God cares about and approves of, approves of both in his king, but also in us. It speaks to us. The spirit had departed Saul to lead at the end of chapter 15, and the Lord starts chapter 16 like this. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. That means get the oil ready. We're going to anoint somebody and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. God tells Samuel, it is time for action. There is a time to weep and there is a time to go. And as you reflect on Jesus's life, remember it, Jesus is called a man of sorrows. His life is filled with tears, but they never keep him from obedience. Think about it. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, looking over it before he marches in. He weeps in the garden of Gethsemane as his arrest and crucifixion approaches. But as he weeps and in his sorrow, what does Jesus do? In all three instances, he prays to God and his prayers to God actually propel him to further obedience. See, our tears in life are not a pass to quit obeying God, but they're actually a path right to the presence of God. 
so much in our culture. It's like, oh, I'm suffering, so, you know, I'm just going to quit, whatever. I don't have to obey. I'm going to go my own way. And I'm telling you, church, just as God instructs Samuel, just because suffering has come or sin has come doesn't mean that the Lord is sleeping and not doing anything. Our suffering is evidence of a broken world, not evidence of an uncaring God. Your tears are an invitation. It's a trail straight to him if you will take it in prayer. And God will give you the strength to move forward. That's what he tells Samuel. The mission isn't over. There's a king coming, even as Saul has gone off the rails. And so Samuel heads to Bethlehem, and that is the same Bethlehem that Jesus will be born in over a thousand years later. And Samuel tells everyone to get consecrated, which basically means go wash up. It's a dirty life. Let's wash up. We're having a sacrifice. But remember, a sacrifice back then is also a family barbecue. Because when you kill a whole heifer, you got to eat the cow right now. There is no freezer. There is no fridge. We're going to kill the cow, sacrifice, maybe burn a portion to the Lord. And then we're going to have a barbecue with the rest. We are going to celebrate God and his goodness as we pray and give thanks. So go get everyone, but especially go get Jesse and his sons. And he doesn't really tell them what's going to happen next other than we're having a huge party. And remember, Samuel's like the most famous man in Israel, maybe even more famous than Saul or right there. So it's like the king himself has come to town. So people are probably dressed to the nines. They are all washed up. They're ready for the party. And you got to, I like to think it's like Survivor maybe. Um, There's probably torches lit everywhere. You know, there's no electricity. There's no indoor place this is going to happen. They're going to burn a piece of an animal. Like they're outside, maybe in the town center. There's torches, everyone. No one really knows what's happening. They kill the animal. And then Samuel starts this weird leadership beauty contest of having Jesse's sons kind of like walk in front of the fire and Samuel look them over. And I guess what he's looking for is the Lord's anointing or his sign that this is the son. But the beauty contest, this leadership contest kind of starts. And this is what happens in verse six. When they arrived, talking about Jesse and his sons, Samuel saw Elab and thought, surely, look at this guy. The Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And Eliab is the oldest. He's probably the strongest. He's probably the rugged, handsome one. We find out he's a warrior later. And Samuel surely thinks, I'm here for him. This guy is a spitting image of King Saul. We got another one, but this one's going to work. But then the Lord interrupts. He reads Samuel's thoughts and says this in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance, or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. And Samuel learns this king won't be like Saul. This king, God's going to provide for himself. If you remember 1 Samuel 9, Saul, Saul was a king that God provided for Israel, but this king will be for God himself. Samuel 9 reads this. This was the description of Saul. And Kish, the father of Saul, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. 
There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Quite a compliment. Not a small people. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was described as rich from a somewhat famous family. So think something like the Kennedys of Israel. But also he was the most handsome man in Israel. So think the People Magazine, Israeli edition, this was Saul on it. Sexiest man alive, Saul. And on top of it, he was also tall. So there's kind of this Kennedy vibe, but a strong kind of Idris Elba feeling too. That this is a guy that the men want to be like and women go, wow, marriage material. And the Lord says strongly this time, I don't care about his looks. I don't even care about his height. Thank you, Lord. For family fame, it doesn't matter. Jesse's just another nobody in a nowhere town. No one's getting excited about Bethlehem. And Eliab physically would be another Saul, a warrior to lead God's people into the fight, baby. Yet God cares about something else. Verse seven finishes. People look at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What does the Lord care about? He cares about the heart. The heart is the essential you. It's the essence of who and what you are. When people ask me about citizens, how's it going? I've found over time, my answer has evolved and evolved, but now people ask me how it's going. And I say, I'm very excited about how God is growing our hearts and souls up in the Lord. Because as I've seen God's heart for my heart, for your heart, for our heart, for the rest of eternity, I've seen it's the most important thing that we would treasure Jesus and help others treasure him too. And I pray that's always true. Here at Citizens, we describe this heart as a garden, this place where your story, the good things, the bad things, the truths, the lies, the, the wounds, the mountaintops, all the stuff of your life is like seeds pushed into this heart and out of it comes the fruit of it for better or worse. And when you become a believer, it's like the Lord planting a brand new seed and starting to till out better soil and work out all the thorns and thistles. This is what the Lord cares about. It's where all your deepest values, your decision-making, your big emotions, or your hopes, your memories, they all live here. And the Lord looks at the heart as a line that's captivated literally billions. Disney is out of business without this idea. It is the plot of Beauty and the Beast, Moana, Frozen, Raya, Encanto. It's the underlying question of Star Wars, of Harry Potter, of Lord of the Rings. Everything kind of falls on this question of what makes a good person, what makes a good heart, how do we know we can trust it, what will it do at the end of the story? And there's a reason it captivates us as we were made by God and made for God. Of course, the Lord cares about the heart most. But our culture is also obsessed with outside appearance. And it's easy to fall into its trap, amen? It's easy to find our worth, our value, think what's most important is in the mirror. 
to think what's most important is on a scale, to think what's most important is what we wear or who we associate with. And the truth is churches are horrible guides for the Lord does not care about outside appearances as people do, but cares about our hearts. He looks intently at our heart. Proud people worry about appearances and the approval of others. Proud people worry about appearances and impressing in the approval of others, while humble people are concerned about the Lord and about what the Lord cares about, namely here, our heart. And with God whispering in Samuel's ear, suddenly none of the sons look like a very good idea. And imagine you're in the crowd. It's survivor style, there's torches, and these men are walking before this famous kind of now somewhat elderly man who's just saying, not him, not him, not him, not him. And it just keeps going. Seven is a lot of not hymns. And he ends up asking him, well, verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you got? Because I know from the Lord, one of your sons is getting this anointing, though he doesn't say that. But do you have anybody else? Is there someone away at war? Is there someone on an errand? And Jesse responds, there is still the youngest, which also means weakest. Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. And so Pam, Samuel walks into this town, no invitation, no, no announcement until he gets there and becomes this party star starter. Everyone drop what you're doing. We are going to sacrifice to the Lord. The party is here. And then on a dime, he becomes the party stopper. We're not even going to sit down, which in other words, we're not going to even eat all this food. And you can start to imagine an entire town is sitting here with the meat cooling down, with the sides, you know, auntie brought, brought, brought her, her wheat dish over here. No one's touching it. Someone brought some bread over here. Nope, we're not, not touching Abinadab's bread. He's great at it. We're not touching it. And you can just imagine how many people are sitting there going like, wait, what is even going on? He's rejecting Jesse's sons. Is this Jesse's fault? Whose fault is this? The flies are coming for the meat. It's getting cold. We get impatient at a grocery line. We get mad at a long prayer at Thanksgiving. Imagine hours. The field isn't like the next field over. David is not even within earshot of what's going on. Someone has to go find this guy and it won't be over Snapchat. We got to go find David. He's somewhere out there. And everyone's just waiting. And you realize the father, Jesse, had not even considered David worthy to come. Not even worthy to come to meet the holiest, most famous man in Israel. How often does Samuel just show up at your house, more or less? Not even come to worship the Lord. Not even worthy to have dinner. The sheep were more valuable to Jesse than David in his life. David is likely 10 to 20 years younger than Eliab. It says he has seven sons passed before him and to have seven sons in ancient Hebrew life would be a perfect number of sons. So David is literally being treated as the eighth son. He's the spare, the extra. But while David is forgotten by all, David is seen by God. He is seen completely down to his heart, into his bones by the living God of the universe. 
Church, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt invisible? Have you ever felt like people see right through you? Maybe even the spare in your family growing up? I want you to know the truth, even if you've had those tough feelings of being, who cares if I'm here, I'm worthless. Maybe even I wish I was invisible. I want you to know that the Lord sees you. And he saw you back then, and he sees you right now. And God, as we sung, is Jehovah Jireh, a provider. He will see you in your struggles and in your celebrations in the future. That like David, alone tending the sheep, he could have easily said, no one cares about me. But David would have been wrong because the Lord actually saw him. What would it be like if we believed the heart mattered most all the time? Because David is chosen because of his heart from God. What would it be like if you walked into work and you started to treat your work as the heart matters most. That you step right into being a leader and shepherding people's heart more than just getting it done. What if in your performance reviews, even getting reviewed from your boss, you are concerned about how your heart reacts more than the words he or she says to you exactly? What if you had paid attention to your heart, to your coworker's heart? How would it change your marriage to say, I'm here trying to pursue my spouse's heart until I crack that egg open and get to enjoy one another at a deep level? How would it be being with your extended family the next holiday or family of origin to say, I'm here on a mission, not just to get in and get out, but actually to say, I want to see how much I can care about people's hearts. And there may be hard limits there, might be tough situations, but what would it look like year after year to where they go, man, every time Sally comes, she cares about my heart and I've started to notice it's year eight. What would it look like to teach our children that your heart matters most? It's not if you're the best at sports or learn to read first or math or who has the most friends or who has this cool thing or this cool tennis shoes, but it's the heart that matters most. I believe if we focus on the heart, then Jesus' teachings of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength will begin to make a lot of sense because it's what he cares about most. Who knows how long this took, but they find David in the field. The brothers are watching, seeing him coming through the flies. And this is what it says in verse 12. So he sent for him and had brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Doesn't really explain it, but does it. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. It had left Saul, and now the spirit to lead and lead God's people was on David. And ruddy, beautiful eyes and handsome features here, uh, it really connotes more of a youthful childlike appearance. That David's a man, but he still kind of has his boyish look emphasizing how truly young he is, that he hasn't done crazy impressive feats yet. He's still a boy. 
And David's dirty. He's not consecrated like the rest. He's relatively young and weak. Yet this kid brother of a big family just got anointed to be king of Israel. And while Saul will stay in power for chapters and chapters and chapters, we're going to see David's rise into power starting next week as he faces down Goliath. And Acts 13.22 summarizes David's heart in this way, letting us know what was so special about him other than being forgotten and young. Well, Acts 13.22 lets us in on the secret. God speaking, David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. God isn't worried about how you look on the outside, but he sure cares about who you are on the inside. Do you long to impress others or be impressive? Or do you long for God's heart and to obey him? Do you care about what God cares about? Because he cares for your heart first. To put it another way, what are you after? If it's not God's heart, then what is it? And would you be willing to swap it out today to be a man or a woman after the very heart of God? We should care about our bodies. We we can care about fashion. We can care about beauty. We can take care of the things in our life, but they aren't the most important things. And they definitely shouldn't get in the way of our heart's love and obedience to God. If we care about outward appearances over our inward reality, we will simply miss what God is doing in our life. The action of what God's doing in your life is probably right in here, fam, and manifesting out to all you say and do. The heart of God's king is a heart full of love for God, and therefore the heart from the heart comes obedience. David's going to be a good king, but he will also fall short in some serious, sinful ways. But Jesus is the greater David, a true king whose heart never, ever wavers, not even for a second. John 14, 31 describes it like this. It says, so that the world may know, Jesus speaking, that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Exactly. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't insert some other opinion. He's not worried about what others think. He is in love with a father that loves him and calls him his beloved son. And that heart is this humble heart that wants to obey. Our love for God is expressed in obedience. For Jesus loves God because he's secure in God's love for him. 1 John 4.19 tells us this, that our love for God starts with God, not us. Look at the scripture with me, fam. We love because he first loved us. It's not that we strengthen ourselves up or muster up the courage or fight to love God the most. It starts with God's love for us. If you want a heart like David that is after God's heart, the move is to accept God's love for you. It's not to strengthen yourself, but surrender that God actually loves you and nothing you do can change it. Your heart renovation starts at a surrender 
to a God who relentlessly loves you. David on a hillside of the sheep, it's not that he was special because he was special, but rather he was secure in a God who loves him regardless if his father, his own father, forgot him. Your heart can be after God's too, but it starts with accepting that God's love has come for you. Jesus tells us about his heart in Matthew 11. He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gentle and lowly is a way of saying humble. Jesus, secure in the Father's love, loving him, has the perfect humble heart, which is good news for you and I. Because if you're worn out, if you're tired, if you're confused, if you feel stuck in sin, if you need a new heart, if you need to get cleaned up, if shame and guilt and fear feel like they're winning in your life, then Jesus' invitation stands that he'll be gentle and lowly to you, that you can run to him full of love for sinners, full of love for you, that his arms stand wide for you. That's why he's the king. Jesus died on a cross to forgive a heart that doesn't love God and give a heart back to you that does. That is what salvation is, is to change out that heart and to get a new one from God, forgiven of sin and built to love the Father. If you feel your heart is hurting because of suffering, turn to Jesus with your tears and find comfort. If you feel your heart is dirty with sin, turn to Jesus, just as King David does in confession and repentance. David writes this in Psalm 51, in the depths of his own sin, at the worst moment of his life, for anyone who confesses in repentance, it says that God will cleanse your heart and you will be clean. You can come to God and be clean today, whether for the first time or the millionth time. Jesus stands gentle, lowly, the humble king for you. And David and Jesus have much in common. David points us to Jesus. Jesus is from Bethlehem too. Jesus lives in the spirit too. Jesus is a surprising king. People are surprised at Jesus his whole life. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this guy from Nazareth? What good could come out of Nazareth? All those are true similarities. Yet what matters is the heart that David loves God and points us to a Jesus who loves God quite perfectly. So I ask the question for you, church, family, visitors, friends, how's your heart? Are you humble because you're at rest in God's love? Or has pride robbed you of joy and left you feeling exhausted, judgmental, fighting for love in all the wrong places and refusing God's love and rest for you? Don't be King Saul who had it all, yet refused the God who gave it to him. But be David, who was counted out, but seen and loved by the king of the universe.
Church, rest in the Father's love. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.